I invite you to turn with me now to the book of Proverbs, chapter 4. It's been a while since we've been in Proverbs. We'll look at the verse uh, 19 verses tonight. Solomon speaks here to his sons. Uh, and Solomon, of course, recounts to his sons what his own father David has told him. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 to 19. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you might gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching, when I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me, and he said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. And she will bestow upon you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life might be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. And pass on. For they, speaking of the wicked, they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness. They drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And the way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that as we come to your book of wisdom, uh, that we would be given wisdom. You told us to ask, and you will freely give. Help us uh, to know wisdom, that we might obtain wisdom. A wisdom that is found only in your Son. We ask in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I think it's... Uh, Really great privilege uh, to live here in the West, to have these opportunities where more or less uh, you're able to choose your career. Not every country uh, has that opportunity for those uh, who live within its gates. Um, to be able to go to school and say at the end of high school, you know what, I'd, I want to go to college and I want to be an English professor. Or I want to go to a trade school and become a mechanic. It's, a, it's an opportunity that's held out before you, and uh, though there are certain limits, you know, I, uh, uh, even if I wanted to be an athlete, I am not built for that. Um, but barring those regular circumstances of providence, we are in an age where you're able to choose uh, to be what you want to be, to do what you want to do. Well, I think what we often fail to recognize, this is largely a modern concept. This is not a privilege that has always been the case. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, you typically inherited the trade of your fathers. If he was a farmer, then you would be a farmer. 
If he was a blacksmith, then you would become a blacksmith. If he was a king, then you, of course, if you were the eldest son, would become a king. And if not a king, then you'd be one of the princes. And so you would learn a particular trade. You would learn the, 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 the secrets of the guild, of the industry, that collective wisdom of your family ancestry, so that you might acquire the skills needed to become the best carpenter, or the best butcher, or the best tanner in the village. Well, what we see here tonight is that Solomon, as the king, passes on the trade secrets, the guild secrets, as it were, of the family uh, trade. But what he passes on does not regard farming or carpentry, does not regard uh, masonry uh, or woodwork, but rather he talks about what is needed in order to rule. And here we find that the secret to blessedness is not found in money, it's not found in fame, and it's not found in sex or power, but rather it is found in a wisdom that blossoms from the fear of the Lord. Here the secrets of the kingdom are passed down, not just to Solomon's sons, but they're in fact passed down to the nation, as that this is a book that is entrusted to the whole people of God so that we ourselves might walk in the way of the King of Kings as children of the King. This is the path of wisdom, what it means uh, to be a child of the Most High King of the universe. And here the King speaks to his heirs and sets them on the path to their rightful inheritance. We'll consider this passage in two parts. First, we'll consider what we might call the wreath in verses 1 to 9, and finally the way in verses 10 to 19. The wreath in verses 1 to 9 and the way in verses 10 to 19. You know, I've, uh, as I've told you all many times, I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, several of my friends who still live in Florida attended the, the annual Jacksonville River Run. It's a 15K um, a marathon that takes place in my hometown. And where, uh, how would I describe it? A bunch of loons think it's a good idea to run for a very long time. I don't understand why anybody would ever find such a thing to be enjoyable. Um, But they do, and they spend their year preparing to run the race. Even when I was home back over December, they wanted me to get up on a Saturday morning and run with them in preparation for this. And I said, no, no, wake me up when you get back. The goal, of course, is to win. It's to claim the prize. It's why you get up early. That's why you train yourself and discipline yourself for that particular feat. And Paul, of course, speaks of the Christian life in those terms, that this is a race to be run. It is in hopes of receiving the crown of life. Paul says, I I have not attained. I do not pretend to have attained, but I continue to press on towards that high mark, the great calling that I uh, would stand before my Savior face to face. And on that last day, he would say, well done. Thou good and faithful servant. What we find is the Christian life is not a physical race, thankfully, but it is a spiritual race. It's actually a, a, a more difficult race. It's spiritual. It's moral. And the question is, where do you begin? How do you, how do you train for such a lifelong endeavor? In Proverbs, the first three chapters, the starting place, of course, to wisdom is found in this, learning what it means to fear the Lord. That is, we are to take the Lord's instructions seriously. Christianity is an eminently practical religion. This is not about esoteric philosophy or beliefs. 
It is practical. Christ, having died and raised from the dead, has made a way for man to be restored to communion with God. And now the maker of heaven and earth calls us to holiness of life and to walk in wisdom. As we saw in last chapter, chapter 3, the, uh, the, the centerpiece of this is that of repentance and faith. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. Isn't that faith? Simple trust in God and, and in all your ways acknowledge him. Forsake evil. That's turning from evil. It's a depiction of repentance. And when you do so, the Lord will enlighten the way you should go. He will bring life to your bones and health to your body. And here Solomon pleads earnestly with his sons once more to pay attention. You might wonder why it is that uh, he keeps repeating himself as it were, but I think anybody who has children or anybody who has ever taught school understands why here is a parent repeating himself. Think of the number of times your parents may have spoken to you. I remember the number of times, I don't remember the number of times, but I do remember a number of times my parents telling me the exact same thing over and over and over again. It's not because they didn't have anything better to do. It's because they had uh, their oldest son uh, had a really thick noggin and still does. You, you think of, you know, I'm about to go on a flight tomorrow. What happens on every flight? The first thing that happens once you get seated and they shut the doors. Flight attendant comes out and they give you the instructions on what to do uh, if you were to crash. Now, of course, I think any of us who have been on a flight more than five times should know that whole thing by heart. And you know what? I still have no clue what's going on because I don't pay attention. I know I'm supposed to put on my seatbelt. I know that there's going to be a mask that falls uh, from the top and that there's, uh, I don't know, some type of air mattress under the chair at something. There's something I'm supposed to do. The flight attendant tells me every time what there is. Uh, I am without excuse, and yet I still am not able to repeat it to them. Why? Because I'm not paying attention. Well, here's Solomon repeating himself, but he's telling his kids, pay attention. Listen up. You know, if so many adults are like this on an, air, uh, an airplane, how much worse are we all in the heeding of the call of wisdom? As wisdom continues to call to each and every one of us, listen to the proper path, the proper way in which you are to go. I think this explains the somewhat repetitive nature of these opening chapters. It's necessary. And that's why I think just preaching through the book slowly reminds us that Solomon is doing something that every parent has to do. He has to repeat himself. Solomon is in essence saying, please, I'm begging you, please take note. Do not forsake my teaching. Quite literally here in verse 2, do not forsake my Torah. Immediately drawing our attention back to the book of Moses. David himself, or Solomon himself says here in uh, verses 3 to 9, let me tell you what my father has told me. Here is uh, kind of sanctified intergenerational wisdom. It is the, the trade secrets. Here is what my father has told me, and now I'm telling you uh, what he has said. It's a passing along of wisdom passed from uh, father to son and then from son now to grandson. And it's simply this, stick to the old paths. Only in doing this will you win the race. Only in doing this will you get the crown. Solomon is the wisest king on earth, but he is not reinventing the wheel here. Though the Lord gives Solomon uh, wisdom such that he is, there is none wiser than Solomon. He recognizes uh, the source of wisdom uh, that even his father David has given him true wisdom in which he now passes down. When I was tender, verse 3, in other words, when I was just a young whippersnapper, 
father and mother instructing their little boy from an early age with the Word of God instructs. What Torah commands. You see uh, more echoes to the book of Moses here in verse 4 where he says, keep my commandments and live. Do this and you will live. Moses tells the people. And what is repentance but, from, uh, uh, but, but turning from the wrong path? What is faith but trusting in the voice of your father and persevering along the straight and narrow? It's, it's heeding the voice of your father and saying, I trust your voice more than the cacophony of voices that surround me and tell me to go a different path. There is in one sense a proactive vigilance that must be kept. Wisdom does not simply come by osmosis. Again, I'm not able to repeat to you anything that the flight attendant has ever said uh, during the opening instruction on what we're to do in, 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 uh, in case of a crash. I just know it has something to do with seatbelts. But that's not enough to save one. Note the language of these opening verses here. Verse 1, be attentive. Verse 2, be careful. Do not forsake. Verse 4, hold fast. Verse 5, do not forget. Do not wonder. In other words, wisdom must be pursued. Wisdom must be cherished. Verse 5, the ESV says, get wisdom. Quite literally, purchase wisdom. Acquire it. Four times this verb is used in this section. There's an an economic aspect, as it were, to gaining wisdom. It is something that is going to cost you. If you've ever played the, the board game Monopoly, the game that never ends, how is it that you win? Well, this is what you do. You, you, you buy property. Well, once you buy property, what do you do? Well, you use it to buy more property. Okay, well, I've bought more property. What do I do? Well, you use it to buy more property. And you do it until there's no more pro- property to be bought. Or until, you know, uh, you have a family member, somebody you're playing with just gets too mad and they flip the board over and the game's over. That's the image here. You buy wisdom. You get your hands on it whatever way you can get. And then you use it to buy more wisdom. And then with that, you use it to buy more wisdom. And more wisdom. And more wisdom. And more. Isn't that what Jesus said uh, in the parable of the talents? The one who has will be given more, but the one who does not even that will be taken away from him. That's the imagery that we see going on here. And yet it's not just economic in its aspect and wisdom's regard. Here David uses also marital imagery here. Verse 8, you are to prize or to cherish wisdom. Uh, You are to love or embrace her, right? Wisdom is not just uh, another gadget to be bought and stuffed in the closet. Wisdom is to be your blushing bride, Right, in older cultures, a man prayed what, uh, paid what was called a bride price for a woman to the girl's family. In one sense, it showed what the groom thought his gal was worth. You know, it doesn't sound romantic today, but for in older cultures, for a guy to say, I think you're worth four cows, might say an awful lot in certain cultures. Well, what, this is what David is, in one sense, saying to Solomon. What is wisdom worth to you? What's the kingdom worth to you? You think of the man who finds a pearl buried in a plot of land, and it's so valuable he sells all that he has to to own the property so that that pearl might become his. You see, here wisdom is described not simply as a bride to be cherished, but also described as a warrior bride. 
Look what David says to Solomon. If you cherish her, she will protect you from all harm. She is the one who will protect you. She will guard you. If you embrace her, she will lay upon you the crown of life. It's the very same thing that the Lord uh, Christ says to the churches in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2. Persevere faithfully to the end. To the one who perseveres, you will be given the crown of life. There are these great blessings that attend wisdom, that of protection, that of beauty, of glory and life. And just as David passed the secret to wearing the crown down to his son, now Solomon passes down these trade secrets to his own sons and even to the whole nation as we have set before Solomon an, a royal priesthood. Those who reflect and image their father in heaven. And once again, Solomon now speaks of the two paths that are set before his own sons. You see that here in verses 10 to 19. Which way, which path should they go? The path of the righteous or the path of the wicked? We see this over and over and over again. It's, it's even the introduction to the Psalter. Blessed is the man who walks in the path of the godly, but the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked, the one who even heeds the counsel of scorners, will be cursed. You know, for us, the answer seems obvious, but consider how tempting it would be to be uh, the royal heir, thinking, what is my chief end? What is my purpose as the heir to the throne? How tempting would it be to make wealth or glory or power your own chief goal? It would shape all you do. Uh, you, you think of the 16th century uh, political writer uh, Machiavelli. Uh, a phrase that I think summarizes his political theory. It's, it's not a, an actual quote attributed to him, or it's, uh, it's attributed to him, it's not said by him, but the idea that the means uh, justify, the ends justify the means. But that's not the path of wisdom here, is it? And yet that is the very temptation that is set out before uh, the sons of Solomon. Don't let these lesser glories distract you because if you make fame or glory or sex or power the chief end of the crown, then you will so shape and reorder your life that you'll do whatever it takes to achieve that. What is it that makes a good king? It's not the pursuit of these lesser goods. It is not the man with the most territory. It's not the man with the biggest stash of gold. You think of Uncle Scrooge and Ducktail swimming in his massive bank, his fortress of gold coins. No, what is it that makes a good king? It is righteousness. And to act righteously, you must operate and know and walk in wisdom. You must be able to discern between good and evil. To pursue anything less than righteousness would cast you off of the path. <coughs> the king ought not to make his chief goal to get rich, no matter what path it, uh, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. Here both David and Solomon have spoken. The crown of life is the goal. And there's only one way to get there. It's by walking the path of righteousness, a path that is described in chapter 3 as the path of repentance and faith. There is no other way. There is no alternate route. And so we see here uh, Solomon in verse 10 echoing the words of the fifth commandment. Driving to home the point, honor me, listen to me, my sons, and if you do so, your years may be many and your days may be long. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long with you in the land. The first commandment, Paul says, with a promise. 
How is it that a son ought to honor his father? It is by heeding his Torah. It is by heeding his father's instruction. And so far the instruction has been this. Stick to the path of the wise. Make wisdom your chief end. Do so with great vigilance. But to do so with vigilance requires discipline. Like a boxer training for the ring, discipline is a skill that is required. The stance, the block, the left hook. It takes discipline. It takes daily practice to perfect. But here, the heir to the throne is to make the discipline in instruction. uh, The practice of paideia. That discipline in knowing wisdom. He is to practice it day in and day out. And if you do so, Solomon says here, it will guard your life even in the midst of the fight. Discipline will be the hedge that keeps you on the proper path. Verse 13, as a man cleaves to his wife, so ought you to cling to such discipline. This training in righteousness. You do this and she will be your life. She is the one who will protect you from all harm. Alternatively, to fail to discipline oneself in righteousness, to fail to walk the path of wise living is to abandon that proper path and embark on a road that ends in darkness, destruction, and death. You see that here in verses 14 to 19. Here Solomon characterizes the righteous uh, and and, uh, what they are supposed to do. He, in essence, hangs a giant no trespassing sign over the path of the wicked. This is not the path you are looking for. Do not go that way. Do not even think of going that way. You say, why, Dad? Why should I not go down that path? The path seems much nicer. The view's better. It seems to offer much more. It might be a shorter path. It might be a less arduous path. Was that the same temptation that was offered to Christ as we saw last week in the morning sermon? Yet Solomon points out one feature of the path of wickedness, the path of the wicked. As he says, son, because you must know that along the path of wickedness, there are bad men who want you dead. Men who cannot sleep until they have done evil. Men who want to see you come to harm. And the only way that harm will ever be able to befall you is if you stray from the path of righteousness. You think of Balaam in the book of Numbers. Balaam is sent by a pagan king to try to figure out a way uh, to destroy Israel. Israel keeps winning all the battles. The pagan kings are trying to figure out a way. And Balaam says, I know the trick. The only way in which they will be able to fall, the only way in which they will stumble, is if you get them to stumble. If they turn from the Lord their God, then the hedge of protection lifts. They now fall under the chastising rod of God. Therefore, he says to the pagan king, send people to seduce the sons of Israel. This is, in effect, the same thing that Solomon warns of here to his own children. There are those who might bully you to try to uh, frighten you off the path. There are those who might get you to compromise, to try to seduce you and and lure you away from the straight and narrow. They might try to entice you with smooth words. They might pretend to be your friend. They might want even to make you feel like you are part of the gang. 
And yet Solomon says they will do so only so that you can let down your guard and in uh, when you are least suspecting of it, they will slit your throat. Isn't this Paul's own warning to the church of Corinth? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, bad company corrupts good character. Be careful who your friends are. They influence you in more ways than you could ever possibly imagine. The language here is almost sacramental as uh, Solomon speaks of the wicked. Note verse 17, uh, uh, your downfall, it is their bread, it is their wine. It is the very thing that they live and hunger for, is to see your destruction. That's the goal of the wicked, to get you to compromise your integrity. It might be fun. Even Hebrews says uh, the, the, the pleasures of sin are fun for a season. But it will ultimately lead to your destruction and downfall. Charles Bridges, in commenting on this passage, uh, puts it like this, to pretend to dread sin without fearing temptation is self-delusion. How often do we think, well, I'm not going to sin, but it'd really be fun just to be tempted. And yet, that's the very place where sin begins. As James 1 tells us, it is the lusts of our own heart that draw us away. And it's like a, a serpent's egg. It might seem small and harmless and innocuous, but it, innocuous, but it grows and grows. And eventually, it hatches and gives birth to death. Be careful of temptation. It takes you down a dark road that only gets darker. Not even the wicked know what it is that trips them up. Consider society today with the inundation and immediate access to hardcore pornography or uh, the, uh, 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 the, uh, the various amounts of violence. And yet the media wonders why there are so many fractured homes why there is so much domestic abuse, why there is so much sexual abuse in the home. In a society where hookup culture is the norm, yet people wonder why there is a rise in STDs. How many people, though, would think that the proper solution is found to returning to the old paths of keeping the seventh commandment? It's not an option that you hear in the news. Rather, you'd hear other options, better education, or uh, any sorts of other things. And yet... It is a failure to return to the path of wisdom. Should we be surprised that a society which places such premium on extravagance and greed as is in so much national debt? Or consider the rampant atheism and the immoral living that attends it. And yet the world around us is unable to grasp why the foundations of society continue to crumble. They continue to try to blay, uh, lay the blame somewhere other than the simple fact that we have turned from the path of wisdom, from fearing the Lord and walking in His ways. And instead, the path only gets darker and darker and darker and darker. And yet, the path for the righteous only gets brighter and brighter, doesn't it? We see that here in verse 18. But the wise, when they lay hold of wisdom, it's like the dawn. There's still darkness in the distance. There's still shadows in the trees. But as they continue to get more and more wisdom, the, the sun only gets brighter and brighter and brighter until the full noonday. 
where the shadows banish. There aren't even shadows uh, for the trees. Why? Because the noonday sun stands directly overhead. Such is the description of the one who lays hold of wisdom, the one who seeks to acquire wisdom. There remains, as uh, Charles Bridges puts, a deepening brightness for the wise. Just as David had told Solomon that the beginning of the path of wisdom is this, by wisdom, that you might get your hand on what you can, so you might buy more and more and more and more. So now Solomon says that when you do this, your path will only get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. Brighter till you shine like the noonday sun, bright as the stars in heaven. And at the end of that road will be the crown of life. And then you will learn what it means to rule in wisdom as sons and daughters of the Most High King. I think the question put before us tonight is this, what is wisdom worth to you? The answer should be that it's priceless. Wisdom is found in returning to the old paths, in those paths of repentance and faith, and the glad tidings of the heavenly kingdom that has come through the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is like a treasure hidden in a field, and the man who finds that treasure sells all he has, that he might buy the field and obtain the prize. For the child of God, wisdom is the path to glory. It is a wisdom that comes in the shape of a cross. It is a wisdom that defies the earthly wisdom of this age. As we heed the word, not of the media or the academy, of our friends or co-workers, but we heed the word of the King of Kings and take up our own crosses and follow Him along the path of righteousness. Though it may cost us our lives, it ends in a crown of life. So we ask again, what is wisdom worth to you? as we seek to evaluate our hearts and, and assess uh, the premium we place on wisdom, I think we can ask this, what is it that preoccupies your time? You know, to parents, we are reminded here that wisdom is not merely contemplative. Wisdom is conversational. Uh, wisdom is not something that is simply accrued by uh, the monastic who lives all alone out in uh, the middle of the woods or in the desert. But here, wisdom comes in the form of the family as the father passes on that wisdom to his son and his grandson. What is it that Deuteronomy chapter 6 says? When the Lord says, this is the commandments, do this and live that you might walk in them, that your days might be long, long in the land, and you shall teach them to your children when you get up, when you go on the way, uh, when you eat, when you go to sleep. This is something that shapes the conversations we as parents should be having with our children. It is a duty that is not simply found on the Lord's day. It is something that should occupy the whole of our lives in passing on wisdom and reminding our children to pay attention that there are things that are much more important than social media. The conversations that you have with your kids today matter. Instilling in them the urgency in the matter of sticking to the old paths so that when they are old, they will not depart from them. Might I address the kids for a moment? This is something that is, I think, uh, addresses uh, children, us children here as well. What kind of ear are you lending to your parents? Are you actively listening to them? Or are you only thinking about when you could go out and play again? There's a good time to go outside and play. Playing is great. 
But there is also a time to listen and to heed the instruction of your parents who are preparing you for life, preparing you for the great difficulties that attend this earthly wilderness. You know, to the older teens, you know, what occupies the bulk of your time? Is it learning what it means to fear the Lord and walk in His ways, or is it simply just spending time on one's cell phone or on Instagram or attending to celebrity gossip? See, wisdom is only found in one source, and it's not found on e-news. Wisdom is found in Jesus, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And here the king of creation invites us, even the youngest person in the room, to come and sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is the heir to David's throne, and acquire wisdom and learn what it means to be a son adopted into the courts of the king of kings. You might ask, what does this cost? And Isaiah tells us, it's free. Come, come and buy without money and without price. Come and drink freely of the waters of grace that your thirst may be quenched and that you might find rest for your souls. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the wisdom that comes from on high and we do ask uh, that you would give us an ear that would attend uh, to the instruction of our Savior who calls us to turn from sin and to turn to him and to walk in all of his commandments and ways we ask in Christ's name. Amen.